Hi, I'm Katerina, and this is Sound Effects, a music and mental health podcast. Hi everybody, welcome back to Sound Effects Pod. I'm, I'm going to keep this intro quite brief. Um, my guest is Paul Dixie Dixon, who many of you will already know as the inspiration behind the film Svengali, which was released in 2014 after a run of pilot YouTube episodes in 2009. The film starred Vicky McClure as Shell and Johnny Owen, who plays Shell's partner Dixie, who's an enthusiastic band manager based on Johnny Owen's real-life band manager from the 90s during his time in the Pocket Devils. My reason for interviewing the real Dixie in this episode is partly because he's hilarious and deserves an interview anyway, but mainly for slightly sadder reasons, because pre-lockdown, his daughter Holly Dixon sadly took her own life. Dixie's since been managing a band called Jarvis Lane, who recently released a charity single in memory of Holly and two of their close friends of the band, Lawrence Brown and Alan Green, who also took their own lives recently. So we'll talk about this charity single with details of how you can download and donate towards it if you'd like to. All proceeds go towards Mind in raising awareness of suicide. Obviously this is a heavy subject and it's treated with care but it's also interspersed with a lot of humour and anecdotes from Dixie explaining the good, bad and ugly of his own life as a band manager over the years. I've provided full details of support helplines and how to donate towards the single in the show notes, Um, but I'll talk to you again on the other side of this interview. So I'll see you over there. Here's my interview with Dixie. to do this, Dixie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. You know, it's something I'd like to talk about to stop anyone else doing the same sort of thing, you know, so... Because uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I always look at it that I was really lucky, lucky to have Holly, you know, she was such a great girl. We never, ever had a crossword. Yeah. Um, and she was always so funny, you know, from an early age, her brother Tom was like two years older than Holly, but they could both see through me from day one, you know, they had my number totally. <laughs> and <laughs> um, yeah, they, they, they were really close as well. Yeah. I, I never met Holly, but I remember you posting a lot about her and used to post pictures of her and Tom. I always used to really enjoy reading the posts. I remember feeling like you all had a really lovely relationship. We, we did, we, to... we did, you know, they, they, were so, they were so funny from such an early age, you know. And um, like when Holly was eight, she wanted to go to Escape, which is like an old night, nightclub in Swansea, with a friend of mine who was 25 for her 25th birthday. And Holly's, Holly's eight years old now, and she's going, I want to go to Escape with Louise. I said, Holly, you're eight years old. How would you possibly go to Escape? I get fake ID. So I said, <laughs> okay. I said, you can still get, you can get fake ID. I said, but you're still only this high. 
I'll tell them I've got a growth problem. You know, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, they were, yeah, when, when, they were, when they were that age, they could see right through me, you know, they were... I used to, my Christmas wrapping of presents was terrible. I used to get a roll of gaffer tape and just go round and round and round it. You know. They came in one Christmas morning and Holly said, nice wrapping of those presents, Paul. And Tom looked at them and shook his head and he went, they're not presents, Holly. They look more like hostages. <laughs> 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 and he, he wasn't wrong, actually. <laughs> But Holly was, you said Holly worked in the care profession, so she yeah. was a carer. she was a care manager or supervisor um, when she was 23 and she'd worked in care or, you know, since she left school really um, and got promoted really quickly and she was, you know, she was working long hours and I think she went, but she did go over and above as well, you know, yeah. like taking some of the kids out with two walker dogs on the beach when she wasn't even in work, sort of thing. Um, she was, she, uh, she was really good like that. She had a nice house, nice car. Never saw her coming in a million, million years, you know. Yeah, this was before lockdown, wasn't it? Or yes, um, yeah, it, it was. Yeah, yeah, because she'd have been great in lockdown, and um, you know, useful as well. And my mother would have loved it. She died about six weeks later because she couldn't cope with Holly's death, you know. Ah, oh, okay. And my mother was, she was um, a rock and roll animal, you know. She was she was 90 when she died. She last went to see the Who when she was 88. And she could out drink Sally Cinnamon, gin to wine, well, what equal measures, you know. Yeah. She, uh, the first time Sally ever met her, you know, um, I was deciding what drink to offer Sally. So I said, what would you like to drink? Um, uh, I was just looking at the drinks over there. And Sally said, did you hear that, Babs? Your son can't even remember my name. And my mother went, why do you bother with him? You could do much better than him. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember a story where you said she she had, uh, she had was in a car and she knocked a wall. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. There were six blocks on the, on the yeah. driveway underneath the car. So I said, Babs, you've hit the car, you bloody idiot. No, I haven't. I said, the, the wall's underneath your car. Oh, I can't think of that would have happened. So I said, well, there's only two ways it would have happened. You and the car, you you and the wall would have collided. So she wouldn't, she wouldn't, she wouldn't accept it. So I was, I was underneath the car pulling the blocks out. When she came out of the house and said, I think I know what it was. When I came back from Asda, I closed the boot a bit hard. So, <laughs> so Sally said it was right, and she believed that, right? And Babs, Babs, every time I left the house after that, I'd say, careful of that boot now, Babs, or there'd be a tsunami down the Mumbles, which is like a seaside resort in Swansea. Um, and she'd say, oh, piss off. Anyway, Sally believes me. <laughs> <laughs> she was, you said she was a real rock and roller and that um, she oh, loved she, the hoop. When there was an earthquake in Swansea, we were in London once and we heard in the news that it was an earthquake in Swansea. So I phoned Babs up on loudspeakers and said, Babs, um, do you hear that earthquake earlier? And she was about 86 at the time. No, I had the sex pistols on full blast, didn't you hear a bloody thing? <laughs> and Sally was shocked, I wasn't at all shocked, you know. <laughs> she read Johnny Rotten's autobiography four times when she was like in her mid-80s. Oh, wow. Amazing. 
and she she would she would have got older, you know. But um, but when they when they took her into the care home because she couldn't cope after holy time, she said to the nurses, she said, um, oh, I'm I'm really thirsty. There's some water cooling in a in a bottle in the fridge. Can you get it for me? It's, it's in a bottle marked gin. It is, but it's water. So the nurse went to get the bottle, took the lid off it, sniffed it, and went, smells like gin to me, Babs. <laughs> and she was going, oh, well, back it off, just let me have a little drink. So I used to sneak some into the nursing home for her, you know. But she didn't have, like, me and my brother up on the walls, my brother John. She had Pete Townsend and Roger Dory up on the walls. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Were you all right with that? Yeah, yeah, because I was, yeah, yeah. She had three, well, she had... Two who songs and always look on the bright side of life at the funeral, you know, it's just you know, uh, fit yeah. in. <laughs> That's really come across, I think, with um, ever since this happened with Holly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, I, I can fully appreciate how devastating it must have been. And at the same time, I remember like you being so clear that you just wanted to celebrate her. Yeah, it's, just, it's hard to put into words because I, you know, I, I feel so grateful for, for her having been there. And then you miss them so much, you know, because, uh, I mean, I think one of the proudest moments of my life was I took Holly to the, um, Svengali premiere at the Edinburgh Film Show and um, she met like Vicky McClure and you know Johnny Owen and all the cast and everything and, and at the end of the film it got a standing ovation and Holly was stood up next to me sort of clapping away and tears were streaming down her face and she said Paul that's one of the best thing films I've ever seen in my life and I felt so proud of that moment you know it was just Jolly Owen, one best newcomer for that as well. It was a fantastic film, Svengali. Like for anyone, um, anyone listening to the podcast who doesn't know about it, I'm sure a lot of people listening, obviously, they know you and and they will know Svengali. But I'll just explain, like for yeah, anyone sure. who yeah, doesn't, sure. yeah. Um, basically, you were the muse. You were the inspiration behind the film Svengali, which was um, it starred Alan McGee, Johnny Owen, and Vicky McClure. So uh, Vicky McClure played the the girlfriend of the character Dixie, who was based on you, who was the manager of a band called the Premature Congratulations, and he was trying to get them a record deal, and he was quite sort of. Um, I think they, they they base this a lot on some of your stories of being. Yeah, sort of... well, I used to manage Johnny Owen's band. Okay. Jo yeah. Johnny was a singer with a band called the Pocket Devils. Yeah. I I managed the Pocket Devils, so that's where a lot of it came from. But it came from other bands I managed as well, you know. Well, Svengali started online. You know, it was a small sort of viral idea that I had uh, just to do a little bit of drama, just do a few minutes to see what people thought of it. I mean, the internet is full of, you know, kids falling off skateboards and smiling cats or whatever. So I just thought, let's put something on with a bit of a narrative and a story. And I, I kind of um, I had the idea of doing it about um, the, the, the manager of my band in the mid-90s, Paul Dixon. That's why he's called Dixie. 
uh, and to set it in the world of rock and roll. Alan McGee gave me a great line, actually. He said, uh, rock and roll is the only industry where bad behaviour is actively encouraged. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that, you know, if you fall over in a bar and you're Pete Doherty, people think you're a poet. If you fall over and you're an electrician, you get thrown out. So I thought there was a lot of potential in that for comedy. The online series was so popular that uh, some private investors got involved and wanted to make it into a movie. Yeah. I mean, the Pocket Gunners, we got really close to a, to a major deal. Sony spent 38 grand flying us out to New York for a showcase at Sir Studios in Manhattan. Um, the president of the label flew over from California, a guy called Phil Ramon. They offered us a $5 million deal over five albums. We would record a debut album in Nassau and the Bahamas where they had the studios. Two weeks later, Sony restructured worldwide and it was gone. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. How was that for you? Uh, pretty devastating, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, it was, there, it was actually there and offered to us and, um, and then it, it all went. And I lost a major deal at the same time with a guy called White Town. Do you remember him? He had a hit with a song called Your Woman, a quirky yeah. little. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he did a remix for the Pocket Devils. And his original single, all he did is set six cassettes off, okay? Three to re re uh, record companies and three to radio stations. Well, Mark and Lard picked up on it and made it their single of the week. Then um, Simon Mayo in the, on the breakfast show picked it up and made it his single of the week. And it was only on cassette. You know, he sent six of them out. So EMI signed him and it went to number one in 17 countries around the world. His first ever release. But then EMI dropped him because they were only looking for market share for that particular quarter, which sounds crazy, doesn't it? So I got in the deal, I said, you pay managers in London three grand a month to get him a new record and publish a deal. And they were, nobody knew that he was looking for one. You know, they weren't doing anything. So I, so I said, look, if I can get you the deal you want, can I, can I manage you? Yes. So I took Diderius up there, who was the head of Sanctuary, and uh, Joe Mishra, White House's real name is. And... Um, Di Davis was the head of Sanctuary on Trident Studios, Normus Studios. At the time, they had Destiny's Child, Elton John, they were massive, you know. He offered him everything he wanted, a quarter of a million pound up front, determines the release schedule around the world, anything that's not released within nine months in a certain territory reverts back to him. It was the absolute deal he wanted, and he walked away from it. Oh, wow. And that happened within six weeks of losing the Pocket Devils deal as well. Do you know why he walked away? Yeah, because apparently his wife had told him, she was, she was there all day, but she didn't say anything. When we left, his wife had told him that Paul Dixon was making money out of his acts, money out of the publishing companies, and money out of the record companies. And the fact was, Paul Dixon wasn't making anything out of anyone. Because oh, no. <laughs> until you get so a you... deal, you don't make anything, you know? Yeah, so you basically... You weren't making any money out of it, and then he walked away, so yeah. you were just left. Yeah, and I, I, wow. you know, and then he released a, a thousand CDs on a, a label, label called Parasol for the whole of America, and he's surprised I'm on the number one. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that that all happened within like six weeks of each other. Gosh, that was all in the nineties. 
Uh, yeah, early 90s, yeah. What happened to you next after after that happened? Oh, I went selling mobile phones in a call centre. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then I was never, ever going to get involved in the music business ever again. And, well, I wasn't before I started managing the Pocket Devils. Because Michelle, my ex-wife, had said to me, right, if you manage these, that's it, we're finished. So all the way up, I drove up to Cardiff to see them because I promised I had, I would. And all the way up, I was thinking of reasons why I was going to turn manager room down. And they came on stage and totally blew me away. And uh, I was two in the morning, I was going, Michelle, you never believe it, they're brilliant. And she was going, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. Um, and then the same thing happened with the Broken Vinyl Club. I was never going to get involved with the music business again. And Johnny Owen had seen them, and he said, look, we'll manage them together. Dixie, you could do the Welsh side, and I'll be Dixie doing the London side. You've got to manage them with me. So I drove up to London to tell him and Eddie Pillar that I wasn't going to do it. And Eddie Pillar turned to me and he said, well, if you're not involved, I'm not signing them. I was like, oh, no, I didn't see that one coming. So we started off, and two weeks later, Johnny Owen, I got a film made, which is major, major thing to get done, yeah? About two weeks after we started managing me, he rang me up and said, Dick said, I can't handle this, it's too much pressure. You're on your own, mate. And he dropped out. Oh, God. So that kept happening to you. And then each time you would tell yourself, I'm never getting involved again, and then something would draw you back. It's, it's like with Jarvis Elaine, you know. Um, we get sent loads of demos and things and stuff. I was, I was sitting in the garden in Sally's house and this, uh, Mitch had sent me this track Harry came through and I listened to it and I, it just blew me away, you know. So I ran upstairs where Sally said to him, would you believe doing her eyes? And I said, you've got to listen to this. And it blew her away as well. It's, and it's, it's had over a million views though, it's, you know. They are a really, really good band. And I, I sent Mitch a message. As soon as I heard it, I just sent him two words. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, he got it straight, he got it straight away, you know. <laughs> because they were so good. Because he, he knew he had me. <laughs> Brilliant. So that's, that's, a, that's a good way to start it off, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like that that video you're talking about is that the Barbara O'Reilly one? The no, the, the Barbara O'Reilly one. That's a cover of the Who's Barbara O'Reilly, which was from the project that Pete Townsend wrote after Tommy, where it was about the time in the future when everyone was connected to by via computers by something called the grid, and the government controlled everyone's experiences through the grid, and you were only allowed to experience certain things when you access the grid via the government. Anyway, he put this he put this concept together, put it out, and nobody got it. And the reason nobody got it was it was written four years before the internet was invented. They predicted essentially what happened to us in yeah, lockdown. Yeah, in, in, in lockdown. That's why it fitted in so well with lockdown because of the the, the, the way it was, you know. And yeah, he, Pete Townsend had a nervous breakdown after that because nobody got the, the concept. And then the concept was um, that a musician had developed a unique chord for each person. And when they listened to this chord, it would set them free from the grid. Right. So that's what Barbara Riley is all about. <laughs>
But when Johnny Owen played it on his talk sports uh, radio show, his co-presenter thought it was The Who. It sounds really similar. It's a really good cover. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, they've put everything into it. And um, the videos are really good as well. website like they um it says they're taking a lot of inspiration from like the who and um, 90s yeah. brit pop and uh, mods the mod scene and stuff like that and yeah yeah they've got exactly the same influences as me as me you know which is why we probably why i had to send mitch that message <laughs> two of their friends have committed suicide as well we, we did that for mind as a fundraiser for mind to um to earn money for the charity, you know, because it seemed more relevant in lockdown than ever before. So when they, when you discovered that they had two friends who took their own lives as yeah. well, did had you met them before? Holly no, but they, they were close friends of, of Mitch and, and the bands, you know, um, which is quite sad, really, to think how many people do that, you know. So that must have been like another way that you bonded. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the the single is raising awareness of suicide um, in memory of yeah. Holly and the two Lawrence Brown, Alan Green. Yeah. Three of them come up at the end of the video. You know, Holly, Lawrence, and. All of them. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was you know another tragic thing that nobody saw coming. You know. Like we didn't, we didn't with Holly. You know, she, I, I'd never seen her. She always made me laugh. You know, she was, um, she was just a really funny, happy sort of girl. She was into the same sort of music. She came up to the loads as Spengali Pirates and that. You know, and came to the screening and uh, yeah, I, was, I, I got to thank Johnny Owen for that moment. That was, that was a proud moment for us. Uh, Johnny Owen and Vicky McClure have been together for 10 years now since the film. It's, it's incredible, yeah, yeah. when Svengali was released. Well, they did the the pilot episodes was 2009, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And then they did yeah. the film 2013 was the film? Yeah, 14 it came out, yeah. yeah. 14. And then that was when they got together. So, yeah, it's... it's around that time wasn't it i remember yeah. it when it yeah. when it happened it's gone so fast but and um, alan mcgee went on tour you know it was supposed to be Joe Owen and alan mcgee and then they, they'd show the film and the, the two of them would do a q a after it and i thought oh, i've got to blag onto that somehow i've got to trust i got to sort of <laughs> latch onto it somehow and then alan mcgee phoned me up one sunday afternoon he said dixie um johnny can't do this tour and I, I said, I'll only do it if you do it with me. I was like, 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whereabouts did you go on the tour? Oh, um, Brighton, Oxford, London, Liverpool. Um, it was about 11 dates altogether. Really good. It was really good. Like the Liverpool one, all the farm came, you know, loads of bands came to see it. And, and they all said it was exactly what, the way the music business is, which, yeah. which is right, you know. So, Horsey is every A&R man you ever met. Yeah, that's why I, I loved that film so much. It was it it was so moving because I, I loved the pilot episodes as yeah. well. They were really funny. Yeah. That's where I, I first met you, I think, through those pilot episodes. Yeah, yeah. They were recording one of them in the Boogaloo. And that's right, I yeah. That was the one where... Um, I was talking to Steve Diggle from the Buzzcocks that day, for ages, you know. Yeah. And he was telling me this story, you know, that Pete Townsend was his absolute ultimate hero. From the age of 10, he used to worship Pete Townsend and practice what he'd say if, if ever he met him. And he'd come up with all these different introductions that was going to, you know, be the first impact to, to his hero and everything. And then the Buzzcocks got a gig supporting the Who at the Teenage Cancer Trust the Royal Albert Hall. So Steve Diggle said, I saw Pete Townsend standing there talking to somebody. He said, and I just went over to him and I couldn't control what was coming out of my mouth. I said, hi, Pete, I've got a big nose too. <laughs> and Pete Townsend, he said, Pete Townsend turned to the bloke he'd been talking to and he said, I've never met him before. He just called me a big nose cunt. <laughs> <laughs> First impressions and all that. But Pete Townsend's going to get sense of humour, so you know. Yes, that must have been cool for you. Yeah. But yeah, I've seen The Who probably 70 times. And Irish Jack, you know, the guy who they based Quadrophenia on. Yeah. When I was managing an old mod band called The Scene, we did a tour of Ireland. And um, this guy called Irish Jack had written to me. I thought, oh, that's cool, that's it. A guy called himself after the Irish Jack, you know. And when, when we got there, we found out it was the Irish Jack, the Pete Townsend of Base Quadrophenia on. So we've been made ever since. And um, he brought me, halfway through a gig, but once in Birmingham, he brought me an access all areas pass. So I said, Where can I go with this, Jack? Anywhere you want. So he led me up to the side of the stage, opened the flight case, and it was full of ice and bottles of brandy, champagne. So I, I would take the piss, I'd have a bottle of lager, you know. So I stood at the side of the stage for the, the second half of the gig. And after the gig, Jack came running up to me. He said, Paul, Paul, you'll never believe this. Bill just came up to me, Bill Kirby, you know, the Who's manager, and said, here, Jack, who's the sinister-looking geezer standing stage right? <laughs> and I said, and who was it, Jack? Jack was like, you, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Are they the stories that Johnny Owen kind of collected together? Yeah, yeah. It, it was based on, um, you know, they, they couldn't do the New York thing because obviously the budget didn't stretch to it. The, the truth was actually much worse than the film. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 
When I first started managing a band, I was homeless. I lived in a car on Ealing Common for six weeks. And uh, it was a Wolsey Hornet, which is like a, a mini on steroids, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not the biggest car. And I lived in a squat in Chiswick. Um, and in the room next to me, I was a mod at the time with Parker, you know, the whole bit. In the room next to me was the drummer from The Exploited. Do you remember The Exploited? Really hard-looking punk band. And they did a song called Fuck a Mod. And they used to go around beating up mods after gigs, gigs and everything. So this guy now, the drummer, he, he put me on the guest list for two of the gigs, right? But I couldn't get anyone to go with me. So I went on my own, in my parka, all my mod gear. And the girl at the Henry Club said, you can't come in here, you're going to get battered. So I said, oh, I know that, but I went in anyway. And they all moved aside oh. and walked to the bar, right? And then the same thing happened at Walthamstow Town Hall. We played Walthamstow Town Hall. And all these really hard punks were there. And I was there, a single mod. And all the locals came down to attack the punks. So there was a guy with an army jacket and a shovel above his head. Oh my God. So I thought, I better take the shovel out before he kills one of these. So I ran at the guy with the shovel and rugby tackled him to the ground. And then it, oh, there was bedlam there. There was police everywhere. And they grabbed me. I said, get off. I'm not with this. You, you want to be careful? Like, dress like that around your mate. They said to me. And then it was six months later, I was on a tube station in London. And there was this really hard looking punk on, on the middle platform. And he shouted, oh, mod, mod. So I thought, oh, here we go. So I did my parker up. And he just went, remember Walthamstow? <laughs> So he remembered you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which year was that? Oh my God, that would be about, I don't know, mid-80s, early-ish early 80s. Yeah, about 83, 84. Okay, yeah. I'm 64 now, I, you know, I forget things that have been around. <laughs> I was going to say 83, 83, I was born then, so that was happening oh, when right. I was being born. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> That's a good excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so wow so basically all these situations so you, you got into a lot of these situations and like obviously you you loved music and were passionate about it yeah. is that you kind of originally thought about managing bands and going into well it? yeah i wanted to be a drummer but i was a shit drummer and i yeah. used i used to try i, I wanted to play like keith boom but Keith Moon, I don't know if you know him, but he's got a unique style, the same as Zach Starkey, because he taught Zach Starkey. Yeah. They got double bass drum, and I could never understand how how he played, right? So I used to back up my drums, you know, and I could never get that same sound as Keith Moon. But Keith Moon used to play drums to, to the lead vocal instead of the bass. So instead of keeping the beat, booch, booch, you know, he was like going off with the, with the lead vocal. And so then I, then I started reading about Pete Maiden, who was the Who's first manager, and then Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, who were the two that, that made him, you know. And the more I read about the management, the more I thought, you know, I'd love to be involved in that side of it because, um, you know, you can, get, you can have some control now. And Alan McGee was always one of my heroes. 
And now he's because of Gallery, he's one of my best mates, you know, which is yeah. which is great really is when it turns out like that. It's yeah. um I Vicky McClure met Rosie Daugherty last week at the Teenage Cancer Trust Gate. I put the photo of the two of them on Facebook or whatever and Roger Daugherty sent me a friend request on Twitter. <laughs> That's so cool, isn't it? When you when you're so much a fan of a band when you're ah, yeah. a kid. Well, it's like um, when the farm played Alan McGee's Chapel. Peter Hooten came up to me and he said, "Hi, Dixie, I'm Peter Hooten from the farm." I said, "Well, I fucking know who you are. Do you know who I am?" <laughs> and he said, "Oh, we, we all came to the Q and A in Liverpool, you know, after the after the film, and um, the first one we did was in Birmingham, and it suddenly dawned on me when I got there." Shit, he signed Oasis. No one knows who the fuck I am. <laughs> but luckily, Vinny, Vincent Kane, and a lot of other people that knew me were in the crowd and they, they asked all the questions. And so it was, it went well, you know, it was good. McGee said, I thought I was going to have to carry you, Dixie, but I didn't. So I thought it was great. <laughs> but the funny thing is, Dixie, is that since that film, I, I remember telling. <laughs> I remember telling loads of people, but I know the real Dixie. Yeah. Like any, anyone who's seen that film, yeah. and I've told like my mum and dad, I know the real Dixie. Yeah. So it's Didn't really, you? I completely get it. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to get like Adam, you take me to these places. Oh, this is the real Dixie. And then I'd, I'd have to drive home, drop McGee off in Hay on Y, have maybe an hour's sleep. And then I avoid my boss screaming in the next morning, and I think the fact can't you late. <laughs> I talk about you know the, from the from the top to the bottom in one twenty four hour spell. So like that boss, you, you often talk about this boss that reminds you of Bryn Cartwright. Oh, like, yeah. Have you seen Twin Town? I've never seen it. Oh, you know. should watch it. It's it's he is exactly like even all his family think he's, he's exactly like him. He, I, I met the, the guy who played Brink Hartwright last year, uh, and oh, he, he's a brilliant actor because he, he's nothing at all like the character, you know. But my boss is exactly like the character, you know. Where the fuck do you think you were going? When? What do you mean, when? Now? What? Who warned me, you pillock? Where are you fucking going? When? Now, you fucking moron! Fuck, you told me to get some obnoms, Bryn. Oh, fuck, fatty, get back up in the lad. Get, get on to the fucking job, man. Hey! And don't bring me. It's Mr. Cartwright to you, all right? Mr. Cartwright. Mr. Cartwright, right? Oi, Bryn! Hello! Are we down for the old McConkie up here or what? What's the existence of the monger like? Not looking too clever. They can be tacked up. You were fucking tacking up, then! Oi, Bryn! You put this old Slamonka up here, I'm not putting my name to this job, right? Now I can't be seen Oi, fucking right. Oi, You and Dave's got bog all to do with this job, right? So just keep those boards up, take the 30 necker I'm so very generously banging him, and try to remember that he was working for Cartwright Roofing, not the Salvation fucking Army. Now get on with it! And you two plonkers can look lively and all! A couple of fucking slugs a pair of you. Like, one more, and I turned up for work. I've been to an appointment, so I turned up and he's he's out in the yard not just as a, as a building company you know he's not just a brush in the tarmac with a hard brush right he's attacking it like he's trying to stab it you know <laughs> so he sees me he sees me walking up the, with my briefcase down and he, he drops the brush doubles up holding his hands to the side of his side of his head like that he goes oh fuck dixon what the fuck are you doing here so i said Oh, I work here. 
So he picked the brush up now and he's trying to sweep me out. Okay? Oh, okay. Not today, you don't. Fuck off. So I, so I stepped over the brush now and um, I said, anyway, I've only just got yours and I haven't even said anything yet. You don't need to say anything. You've just got that fucking look about you. <laughs> How long have you been working with him? 18 years. And he went to temporary. <laughs> while, my music, while my music business career was taken off. The thing is, I worked my bollocks off in the music business to avoid the nine to five. And now I've got the sort of eight to eight. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> you start really, at eight in the morning. <laughs> work. That's, why, that's why I'm in this travellers tonight, because... When you used to tell the stories, I never knew if that was real or not. But it's well, true people, to you. people used to ask me if if I exaggerated them, but the truth is, I actually played them down to make them more believable. Wow! Because this, some of them you just wouldn't believe, you know. <laughs> he saw he saw a guy who owed money walking into an office once, right? So he ran in after this guy, smashed the office up, threw the computer out the window. The guy had only gone in after an interview. I said, did he get the job? <laughs> <laughs> but he still, he still keeps you hired, even though he essentially abuses you. <laughs> well, the other week, he, I got this one castle. We're doing a big refurbishment. You know, the whole house has been refurbished and everything. So he said to me one Friday afternoon, he said, right, that's it. If you ring me once more today, you're fucking sacked. Oh, nice. So I put the phone down, rung him straight back. What the fuck do you want now? So I said, the sack. But he never did. <laughs> <laughs> and he still didn't sack you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I can, I can normally do him with a smart ass one liner or something, you know, or, you know. And, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but he is, he is over the top. He's just, uh, what is it that you have to do for him? Like, what work do I you sell build, to do? building work, like, um, you know, um, new roof, house, house refurbishment, and anything really, any building work. I didn't know anything about building when I went into it, but I sort of picked a bit up on the way. And we, we are a good company. He, he does keep the boys, the boys in line, and, you know, we employ all our own tradespeople and everything, you know, so it's, it's a good company, but he's, he, he works 18 hours a day and expects everyone else to, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you didn't, you didn't um, plan to do that necessarily, but it was like something around oh, the world. definitely didn't plan to do it. it was, I, the plan was the music business, but the yeah. plan, and here I am at 64, still trying to make it, you know. Jarvis Lane, I think, of, uh, such a good band. Um, we, we're doing something on, you know, Facebook is now Meta. Yeah, Metaverse. You, you know about that, do you? Well, I yeah, spoke yeah. to this, this guy called Ging in, in um, Singapore a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying to me, well, you know, Facebook isn't Facebook anymore. It's Meta. And I thought, he's going to give me up. It's like through some sort of <laughs> hoax, you know, a joke. So... I went on the matter, you know, looked, looked better up on Google and everything. And it's, wow, it's, it's out of this world. They got like 3D gigs that you can walk around in and everything. And so this guy in, in, um, Clouds End in 
Singapore, he's doing a video for Jarvis Lane to put on the metaverse. Right, okay. Oh, which cool. is quite good considering I spent two hours trying to connect to the Wi-Fi and bloody... <laughs> <laughs> but wh when do they play? Um, Jarvis Lane. Well, because of lockdown. They, they only formed in lockdown. They did a festival last year in, in the Southwest. They do it again this this year. Um, but the plan is to get them some decent gigs from now on, you know, because since lockdown, everything went, you know, pear-shaped. There was no, nobody was attending gigs and uh, everything was being cancelled. So, but it was a good time for them to develop, really, because they, they've got an album's worth of really good material now and, and vi great videos to go with it, you know. But this is what I, I think, I, I, f I find you very inspiring, Dixie, because, like, when you're talking about, like, all your stories of how you wanted to go in the music business and all these things happen, like, oh. by the sounds oh. of it, like, quite, quite traumatic, like... The heartbreak and the investment of time that you spent on the Pocket Devils. And, I know, um, yeah. I know you, and you think you've got there, and, and then it's all snatched away. It's, it's, it is. Why I'm still doing it at my age, I don't know. It's <laughs> like I said, the Mitch. You know, I do still get inspired by music. You know, it's it's like the Who got me through my teenage years. You know, they they were like I saw them when I was fifteen. I think first of all. And they just totally blew my mind, you know. They were so aggressive and energetic and they had so much attitude and they smashed everything up. And um, they just got me through, especially Keith Moon. Keith Moon was hilarious, you know. I can always remember going, going to school one day, really depressed. And there, the, the newspaper arrived just before I left for school. And there was Keith Moon on the front page Holding a check for £57. <laughs> They'd just done a major tour of America now, played all the big stadiums. And he'd been arrested. They had to pay lawyers. They had to pay for aeroplanes for him to catch the band up because he'd been, be, been banged up. He, he was buying cars out there. He was smashing hotel rooms and absolutely ruining them, you know. And, and all he had left after all that was his 57 quid and he was going to after it. <laughs> I guess that's what um that's always what's come through with you because despite all these hardships um throughout your life by the sounds of it like you you never lost your enthusiasm like I I I mean I don't know how it is obviously in your own time but it comes yeah. across yeah. like you you always you, you still feel just as excited by music and opportunities as you always did yeah i think i think i don't think i've changed in that respect you know i i've um yeah it's still it's still excites me it's still you know i drive the i drive down and around like from bedford to swansea and um I've got the who blasted out or whatever, you know. And then last week, I, I, I got these two DVDs. Well, I thought they were CDs that my mother had in a, in a case. Tommy Live and Quadrophenia Live. So I tried to play them. They wouldn't play in the car. So I said to Sally that, that night, Sally Cinnamon, I said, those two, two CDs wouldn't play in the car. I said, it's not a different format for America because she was going to America a lot. So I thought she might have picked them up with that. And she said to me, they're not DVDs, are they? And I, 
Well, they were. <laughs> what a try. <laughs> oh, but that's, that's another thing. You and Sally Cinnamon have a really lovely relationship. It, it, like you kind of spark off each other. Well, she, then... said, she said to me tonight before this, she said, I was, I was, I was texting her about the Wi-Fi. And, and she's the one who came up with, with using the, the hotspot hot on my phone oh. to connect to that. So, so I was I was getting stressed, you know, and she went, well, you know, you, you'd be good at talking. I said, but I, I never get a chance anymore. I never get a word in it. <laughs> and she was like, oh, piss off. <laughs> you, you always um, have such funny stories. and Yeah, yeah we, do have a, we do have a good laugh. Yeah, yeah. We try to keep it funny, you know, but she, I mean, she's had a lot of heartache as well. Her mother's died of dementia. And you know this is called sound effects. Well, it it's, with dementia, her mother didn't know who she was, but she could remember every the words to every song Elvis ever sang. You know, yeah. it's just, it's a weird thing. And Vicky McClure was on tonight with it actually on the BBC News, saying about the dementia choir and how they they did research into different parts of the brain and found that music could reach a part that. Other things couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I was the only one who could bring Sally's mother around. Every week, she'd be pacing up and down and, you know, stressed. And um, we'd go around to see her every Saturday afternoon. And every Saturday afternoon, I managed to make her laugh and calm her down. I don't know how or why or what, or what you know, but somehow I managed to do it. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, she was getting worse and worse, obviously, but we went, we went to the nursing home towards the end, you know, and me and Sally walked in and uh, her mother was, came up to me and went, hello, darling, and she was cuddling me like that. And the nurse said to Sally, she said, oh, that's her son, is it? And Sally said, no, I'm her daughter. <laughs> <laughs> you're telling the stories they're, yeah. they're really funny yeah. and they're also quite poignant they're quite sad and you've got to try and find humor and everything and you you know it's there's i don't know i i always try to look on the bright side anyway i, I was gonna ask were you always like that from like when you were young i, I don't know really no i think i was a miserable bastard really. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be Keith Moon, and I, the thing is, I didn't want to be like Keith Moon, I wanted to be Keith Moon, but, you know, he was already taken, so, so, um, yeah, but I always wanted to do something different, you know, and I used to, um, I used to go to technical college, allegedly, to, be, to become a surveyor every Thursday, but on Thursday, the music papers came out in Swansea, they used to come out on Wednesday in London. Sounds Enemy and Melody Baker all come out on Thursday in Swansea. So this this two-year course, I never went once. I used to go get the three music papers in the morning and I'd read them cover to cover, every single word in, in each one. And towards the end of this two-year course, this, this lecturer said, he said, tell me, he said, has anyone got a photo of Dixon? Because I've been <laughs> teaching the blog for two years now and I've never seen him. Me and, my, me and my wife have become a bit obsessed by it. He said, we walk around town on Saturday going, that could be Dixon there. 
that, well, that could be him there, that could be him there. I've told him for two years, I've never seen the bloke. <laughs> and then the shit hit the fan, no, no, no. <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't end up graduating as a surveyor? No, no, no. No, I ended up as a, well, we, as the surveying thing progressed, we, we did hit one record. We were in the sun as the third most useless job in Britain. They had, this, they had this job creation programme, right, which university graduates, I was, I was in charge of a team of university graduates who all had like history degrees and stuff, I guess. And our job was counting cat's eyes in the road. <laughs> but we worked out that if we put somebody in the back of the van with the wheel, okay, we, you'd have to turn, turn around every 10 minutes because the road starts to go like a ripple and you, it's like you're tripping, you know? Okay. But we could do it a whole day's work in 20 minutes. And then the only problem we had was hiding this big yellow van with sur surveying lights all over it and stuff and where to hide it, you know. <laughs> we got in loads of trouble with that. So where did, whereabouts was that in Wales? Where, where, uh, Swansea. Swansea, okay. Yeah. So that's where you... West Glamorgan Highways Department. I had a bomb squad out one day, because um, <laughs> it was IRA times, and um, uh, me and the surveyor had to go and level this sort of falling mountain. So he, I said, what should I do with the, the box the level came in? He said, oh, stick it under the back wheel. So we went off up to this mountain. Uh, when we came down, there were ambulances, police, fire, crowd of people, big area taped off, and the bomb squad were on their way from Hereford <laughs> because of this box we left under the car. And then another time we got the M4 closed because we used to, there's a, there's a mountain above the M4 in Port Talbot, which they thought was moving. So there'd be pins on this mountain and you'd have to set a theodolite up and then measure. And they measured in minutes, degrees, uh, min, minutes, seconds, like, like a time clock would be, you know. And we worked out it was always like a couple of seconds out, which is human error. So we, Thought we'd go to the Calvary one day, make them all up. We took it back, fed it into the computer, and they shut the M4. We were oh shitting ourselves. God. It was on Radio 1. The M4 is <laughs> shut in Port Talbot because, so, and the theodolite at the time was £3,000, and this was in 1977. Oh. So, it was all, it was on the news, it was all, we, were, we were shitting ourselves. <laughs> so, anyway, they sent this, um, the Theodolite expert down over from London overnight and he said the Theodolite's knackered you need to buy a new one so they bought a new one and we got away with it oh wow <laughs> 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 so you got so like even then you see it as like sort of escapades in a way that you sort of have stories to tell at the end of them yeah you've, you've, got, to, you've got to you know try and find humour in it and it's it's uh Otherwise, just just really depressing. Otherwise, you know. Obviously, just in a way connecting it to Holly. Like, would you say that as a younger person that you experienced depression yourself in in that way? Uh, I, I, yeah, I have been depressed, but I didn't know Holly was. You know, there was no sign whatsoever that she was. I was in Sally's when when it happened in, in Bedford. And my son, Tom, text, texted me and said, what time will you be home? So I phoned him up and said, why, Tom, what's wrong? 
Oh, nothing, nothing, he said. Just, I just want to see when I get home and so on. So I, t- I told him roughly what time I'd be home. And when I got home, he was sitting opposite in his car. And he just got out and walked across and said, Holly's dead. He didn't want to tell me before I drove down in case, you know, it, it stressed me out too much or I drove too fast or whatever. But um, he's a really thoughtful boy, you know, he's a lovely kid. And so was Holly, she was, she was great looking after my mother. You know, she'd, um, she'd text me and Sally on a Sunday or something. She'd, Babs is asking me to get her another bottle of gin, but she seems pissed to me already, what shall I do? <laughs> Her relationship to your mum was close. Yeah, yeah, very close. In fact, a week and a half before Holly died, um, I had to pick up this, like, movable chair. You know those ones that go back to old people years ago. And I picked one of them off my mother, and Holly had an SUV. So I said to Holly, will you give me a hand to pick this chair up? Yeah, no problem, she said. And then when she was on her way down to pick me up, she texted me to say she was she going to be a bit late because she was in the traffic jam because somebody jumped off the motorway bridge, right? Hi. And when we were going down, I said, I'll tell you, tell you a guy I work with. We talked about the, the suicide. I said, tell you a guy I work with said that two people around by now have hung themselves recently. And I said to her, you better not do anything like that. And she just rolled her eyes and went, Paul, as if. Oh, wow. And then uh, after we put the chair together for my mother and they, they had a really good laugh, you know, taking the piss out of me. As they, they did. Um, my mother turned to me and she said, oh, my God, that girl is such a credit to you. And I said, oh, I don't, thanks, and that's the last time we saw her. Wow. So it was a week later that that happened. Yeah. 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 Not this, she always had such a wicked sense of humour. You know, she was, um, she was, she was a really, really funny girl. She used to, her and Tom would, would just, like, stitch me up all the time, you know. She'd say to him, like, Tom, have you noticed all Paul's smart? Because they both used to call me Paul. Have you noticed all Paul's smart ass one liners either come from Quadrophenia, The Life of Brian, or Twin Town? And Tom went, Yeah, I know that. <laughs> they can see right through me. But they, they were great, <laughs> you know, they, they were really funny kids. They were, they were great together. Um, brilliant double act. You know, they, they, they just had my number straight away. Like, <laughs> Like one Christmas, um, Holly said, have you bought our presents yet, Paul? I said, no, not yet. Well, hurry up before we go bankrupt. So I said, wait a minute. We were only about like six or eight at the time. I said, wait a minute. I said, I've never been bankrupt. She looked at Tom and went, most probably he has, Tom. And Tom went, yeah, I agree, he probably has. And they were close, so Tom and Holly were close as oh, well. Oh, very close, yeah, yeah. They used to arrange to go up and visit my mother together and that, you know. And, oh, and Tom was just... Sally said, I've never seen anything as sad as his face at Holly's funeral. You know, was, he was just devastated. Her, her funeral, all the times, have merged into one because of lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was just before lockdown, and she'd have been really good in lockdown, you know. Yeah. My mother would have loved it because she loves disaster. She didn't know the death rate for every country on the planet. She, 
she loves a good disaster, you know. She's like, she, my mother, my, my mother used to leave her doors open at night because she thought getting burgled would be exciting. <laughs> oh, bless her. That's true. <laughs> when when oh, when she went to see the Who in New York, my brother and his mates got um and his wife and their mates, you know, they hired a stretcher remote to give her a tour of New York first. So they stopped to have a split before they went into the gate down. Uh, one, of, one of John's mates said, my brother, one of John's mates said to Babs, well, what do you think of New York, Babs? Well, to be honest, she said, I'm a bit disappointed. I haven't seen one murder, not even a single bug in yet. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she was really serious, you know. Did, did Holly take after her in any way in that sense, with that sort of... Yeah, I mean, they both had great sense of humours, you know? Like, I, I, I'd never seen it. When I drove back that day after Tom had messaged me, it never even occurred to me in the slightest that that would have happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that that's like the worst thing that could ever happen. As I always yeah. thought the worst thing that could happen to anyone is to lose a child, you know? Yeah. But I, I thought... They had such good sense of humour that they would have got through anything, you know? Yeah. What would you what would you want people to know? Like when you're obviously you're raising awareness of suicide, what do you think you want people to know if they that, if they're listening? It's a it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. Anything that however bad it seems at the time is magnified out of all proportion. And if you distance yourself from it and step back from it, you can see the bigger picture, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you, you get too involved in something and too wrapped up and it's blown out of all proportion and you do something like that. For you, you think that Holly wasn't in that moment able to see that bigger picture? Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I just, I'm 25 when she died, and she was like made a supervisor when she was 23, you know. And my mate who works in the car industry said, You don't get that until you're about 30, normally, you know. She was, she was really good at her job, and, uh, um, but obviously, it's a lot of responsibility, you know. It's what made her want to go into that profession? Well, she wanted to be an actress. That's, that's but she, she, she's given up on that then. Can I talk to a premiere, a, um, a bit of Tom Jones premiere, that Jodie Owen was in, and she got captured by Denise Welsh and all the loose women crowd. And they were all taking around, oh, this is how we made Holly become me, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> so they all knew her, they all knew her. Yeah, they, they, well, they did her then, they only met her then, but uh, they were like, yeah, yeah, she, she, we, we, we did some great stuff together, you know. Yeah, yeah. For you, you feel that this could have all been prevented? I don't know, because I didn't see it coming. In a, like, the, as I said, the last time I saw her was when my mother said to me, Oh, that girl is such a credit to you. And yeah. I said, oh, I know. And, you know, like she'd do anything to help you. you know? She was just a great kid. Yeah. 
I'd been growing up, I, I'd come home after a night out, you know, I'd been working all night in an all-night bar or something, and she'd be sitting there in a riding gear, and I'd, hurry up, Paul, you're late, so let's take a ride in there, and she's <laughs> With, what was she like as a as a very little child? Oh, great! She was when she was four. I put this gig on in Singleton Park for Swansea City Council. Like last minute thing, they came to me and this other guy because the, the guy they booked they originally booked had spent a thousand pound he reckoned on phone calls to Shirley Bassey, and she didn't want to do it. So you'd think after the first like forty quid, you might realise. She's not going to do it, you know. So anyway, we got like um, Chumbawamba, Terravision, Catatonia, The Pocket Devils, and, and put this gig on in Singleton Park. Well, the night before was an opera night, and Catherine Jenkins was singing. And Holly was four at the time. She had her hair in bunches, little Levi jacket on, you know. And she'd never really heard opera before because she'd always been listening to the stuff I'd listened to, you know. And... She, as, as we're walking up backstage, Catherine Jenkins is doing her last song just before the fireworks start, which is what we went for. And she pulled me down and she went, Paul, I think Snow White's band is playing tonight. Because <laughs> <laughs> she'd only heard opera in Snow White, I can do. So she had this intelligence from from a young age. She seems like she was... Yeah, really... yeah. She was a really bright girl, you know. She passed the test straight away, and Tom did. She could be failed a couple of times to give us a chance, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I just, I just can't get my head around it really because you know, you. We did find a suicide note, but it was scribbled out, and after it were designs for a candles in the garden, a new kitchen, and all that, you know. So I don't know. So it's left you with some un unanswered yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah. But she was she was always such a bright, brilliant, funny girl. You take her, take her, you know, has to take her. Well, I, she, she 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 worked. But my mum they opened an art gallery in Swansea, and Holly and her mate were working behind the bar when she was seven, only for one night. Like this. <laughs> but they loved it, you know. They loved doing stuff like that, and they were like, uh, like you, you take them camping or something, right, kids. Family field or non-family? Non-family, they shouted. <laughs> <laughs> they were just, they were just really, really funny, you know. Yeah. I guess, like, what do you think you're still left with from it all? And how do you, how do you cope now? Well, you've got to cope with me. There's nothing else you can do, really. You see the single drum, and um, I know Holly wouldn't want me to be miserable. Well, she said that in that letter, you know. And um, I got to think of back to all the good times. That's that's the way I can deal with it, really. Yeah. But you've got to be positive, you know. But it's, it's I I I I was very lucky to have Holly for twenty five years. I'm sure she was very lucky to have you as well. Yeah, we, we got on really well, you know. They, as I said, they saw through me straight away. <laughs> and uh, I, I quite liked that because it, it, it broke down all that. Like, they both used to call me Paul, you know. 
Yeah. Holly was with, with a friend one day and um, her and a friend were talking about me. And a friend's mother said to her, to her friend, you must know, you mustn't call him Paul. It's disrespectful. You must call him Dixie. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you, you, you kind of hold on to that thing of her not wanting you to be sad and kind yeah. of. Yeah. 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 Otherwise you just, you just go down to, and you know, it's, it's not, um, you can't, it, it, it can't be, you, you've got to keep going. Do you think is the one thing you'd like everyone to really know about Holly? Obviously, you've said loads of really lovely stories about her. If there was one impression they were left with, what would it be? Just what a lovely, caring person she was. You know, like a, this a mother of a Down syndrome girl wrote to herself that she died, you know, saying that Holly went over and above because she used to take her out on her days off. And... Um, and there was one girl she used to, she used to stay, stay overnight with. But this girl used to get so excited, she wouldn't sleep when Holly was there. So they had to stop her staying overnight with her there. Cause she, you know, she had, she had that sort of personality. She was, she was funny, witty, bubbly. Yeah. So she left a, an impression on people. Yeah. Yeah, de definitely. Yeah. So, but... I think Tom's come to terms with it now, you know, he's sort of, he's a, he's a lovely kid as well, he's great. Has it brought you closer? In a, in a way, yes, yeah, I suppose, but we don't get to see much of each other because I live in Bedford most of the time and Tom lives in Swansea. Um, but he was 30 the other day, he was two years older than Holly. Um, but yeah, we we keep in touch, you know, all the time. And something one of Holly's friends said to me at a funeral, you know, and um, she she said, "Oh, Holly loved you." She said, "All the girls wanted you as a father because you you're the coolest dad ever." And I was like. <laughs> oh, <dear." laughs> I just ended up ferrying them around, you know, like it's, but they, they were, they were all a good laugh, you know, they were, like, um, I was trying to make a, make a barbecue one day for Tom and his mates and, and, uh, right, that's it, fuck it, smash the thing up and cook it into the kitchen and then Tom's mates going, yeah, but it's not really a barbecue, Paul, if you cook it into the kitchen, I said, shut up. <laughs> So they all kind of have this banter with you in a way. Like oh, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. And I like that, you know, that's that's good. Yeah, I, I hate all this, like, you know, strict parenting. Well, I never never had to give him a row, really. I took Holly riding once. This guy used to come in, into this club. I used to work with his wife. And I didn't know what he did for a living. I used to talk to him every week, you know, and he said his wife had horses. So he said, oh, bring Tom and Holly down. Holly can ride one of the horses. So he said he'd meet us by this square in the middle of this village. Well, he turned up in a yellow Lamborghini, right? Which was like, <laughs> like a really... Tom went, wow, look at that car. And they say, this guy Simon jumped out of it, right? And uh, it turns out 
He's, he was he was a multi-millionaire with a big farm, um, a business selling telescopes and everything online, you know. And Holly was riding this horse, which was like an ex-race horse up the, up the road. And Simon said to me, he said, Dixie, how are you kids so well behaved? I said, I don't know, Simon, it beats the fuck out of me. I said, um, Holly, Simon wants to know why you're so well behaved. Do you think we should have a row or something so I could, like, so we could see if we not see if we're missing out on something, you know? And Holly went, Paul, grow up, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, as in you? Oh, yeah, yeah, because they called you Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone else called me Dixie, but they called me Paul. They, <laughs> I asked them at an early age, you know, and um, we used to have this little dinghy where we were down the beach, you know, and I called it Drug Runner. And they'd, they'd be down the front shouting, Paul, bring Drug Runner down! <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, I guess, you you were wanting to bring out with the song from Jarvis Lane is raising that awareness. Yeah, that bit, of the Stephen Fry bit at the beginning of it is good as well, you know, yeah. and um, and it fits him so well with lockdown and everything as well. Oh yeah, it is yeah. important to to it's important for people to know that there are people out there who care, you know. There are a number of misconceptions surrounding mental health. There's an enormous stigma. Britain is a, is a country, perhaps more than any other, where you might say that the national emotion is embarrassment. And nowhere is that clearer than when it comes to issues of mental health. People who care, as you said, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And, yeah. Yeah. And you can't go back through it, you know, it's... Yeah. And that it's so difficult when someone's in it to realise that, that yeah that there's other ways and that there's options yeah that there's a way out that there are people to help to listen yeah there, there always is you know and you, you don't realise how much people care about you like there's about 400 people in Holly Food movie you know it's was, it was yeah. just Yeah. So yeah. we lead lives are worse so painful, at best so poor, monotonous and limited, that the desire to transcend the self will always remain a principal appetite of the soul. That's Aldous Huxley, wasn't it? You've got it. Yeah, well done. Yeah. I remember you because you, you often write that um, yeah. Quote on yeah. Facebook. Yeah. And I, I really yeah. like it and I think it sort of sums you up. When we when we were recording with the Pocket Devils at Trident Studios, which Sanctuary owned, because we had a publishing deal with Sanctuary, and um, we were in with um, Sting's producer, Pete Smith, and me and Johnny Owen walked back in the studio one night, and Pete Smith was on the phone with us, and he didn't see us because his, his back was to us, you know. And he was talking about the band, and the drummer's like this, and the singer's like this. And then he went, but the fucking manager can take more drugs than all the band put together and you can't even tell he's taking anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, Is that how you are? Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I remember when the when Svengali was out and Alan was doing the interviews for yeah. it. He he always used to say in those interviews, like everyone knows a Dixie. Yeah, like... he, he was Dixie. You know, was Dixie, and uh, yeah. yeah, but he's always said that. He said, he said, he said, he said to me one night when we were doing the question and answer, he said, with a bit of luck, Dixie, it could have been me. I was like, oh, cheers, <laughs> Alice. <laughs> Would you have liked to have been him? <laughs> well, I would like his success. But yeah, no, we, we were listening to him on Johnny Owen's show, Talk Sport, in the morning. And um, at the end of it, Sally said, do you, do you hear that? She said, he didn't mention Liam once. He mentioned Noel once. And he mentioned you three times. And I'm going, <laughs> yeah. And all these football fans are going, who the fuck is that? It's Dixie. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... I think you represent that kind of person who, you represent the music fan that is so excited and passionate and inspired by a band and you go into the industry with really good intentions Yeah. and you might not know how it works or how, like, you might not have contacts but what you have is the spirit yeah. at that beginning yeah. and I think and then what like how you were describing then on the opposite side you have characters like the horsey character yeah. who are doing everything to sort of scupper you <laughs> scupper right. your chances. Anyway, it was a nightmare because at the time um i started off managing a mod band when nobody would look at a mod band you know like that was they were history but all these a and r people they, they all just copy each other like, people have got to be head of A&R without signing anyone at all because they haven't fucked up. If you sign somebody you, you really like and they go down, you go down with them. But record companies were offering deals to bands that they'd never heard on the grounds that six other labels had offered them a deal. So then if they accepted their deal, they could they could just justify it like that, you know. But loads of people got to be head of A and R without signing anyone at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, um, we were signed. We were when we signed the Sanctuary with the Pocket Devils. We were signed by Dave Ambrose. He, he is a one-off, total legend in the music business, right? He's he's not at all big-headed. He's a he used to play bass for Fleetwood Mac, and Julie Driscoll, and then he was going to become a university lecturer. But he thought he'd give A&R a go first. So he's, he's joined EMI as an A&R man. His first ever signing was the Sex Pistols to EMI. And when the government made EMI drop the Sex Pistols, he got deported. Years later, he signed Duran Duran, and they made him head of A&R. Oh, wow. How mental is that? <laughs> but then you're showing how it works. Like that's how, yeah, that's how it works, and it's really kind of. Dave is like, Dave is like an eccentric genius. You know, he's written a book called How to Be a Rockstar, now, which his his track record was phenomenal, um, and he's just like an eccentric genius. You know, because I believe it or not, when I was in school, my ambition was to be a jockey. I used to have a horse. Aww. Right, I worked, used to work in the racing stables part time, and I always wanted to be a jockey, but I grew up a bit. So, my brother always reckoned that was symbolic of my battle with reality. And I said this, I said this to Dave Ambrose one day, and he just stroked his chin like that, and he said, "Well, nothing wrong with battling reality, is there?" <laughs> you know, that's the sort of guy he was, like you know. 
We were told by somebody else that he'd signed a Sex Pistols to MI. So me and Jonathan had a meeting with him. And then we were over at Bug Music when this guy told us that. So we burst back in his office. We said, Dave, did you sign the Sex Pistols to MI? And he went, well, yes. Well, that's good enough for us. <laughs> Do you think that you'll try to... Are you aiming for the same thing with Jarvis Lane? That you want to get, like, a big record deal? For I'd, love to, I'd love to, yeah, yeah. I'd like, I'd like to put them where they deserve to be, you know. Because they are, they are really good. They're really exciting. And and when you get that... Me and Gary Wood, the, the guitarist with the scene, always used to reckon, when, you, when you're old, you, is when you don't get that rush of excitement, that shiver down your spine, when you hear something new and exciting, you know. And we, we do still get that. So it's instead of, I hope I die before I get old, it's, now we change it to, I hope I die before I act old. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That you still hold that spark and can still feel. That's the, that's true, isn't it? Because um, when you're younger, you, you get that, the first time you hear your favourite band, yeah. it just changes yeah. your life. It changes your life, totally, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, and the Who used to do these, like, it was like a, a tackle of the senses, you know, they just, They'd be so aggressive and so loud and so powerful, and their lyrics meant so much. You know, hope I die before I get old. What a brilliant lyric, you know? People try to put us down just because we get around. Things they do are also called, I hope I die before I get old. And I, I always wanted to, but I never did. <laughs> Your reason for wanting to was because you didn't want to uh, lose that spark. Yeah, I didn't want to be an old fart, really, you know. I know I am one now, but I still, I've still got that little, little spark of ignition that keeps me, stops me being an old fart, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I guess your, your mum was proof that, in, in a way, she. Ah, uh, she was, she was. Uh, her and Sally Cinnamon used to pick on me something terrible, you know. They, they'd be, yeah, uh, <laughs> they, they, they'd be, I'd be like the, the drink spoil, you know, running out, topping them up all the time, and. um and my mother used to drink about two bottles of gin a day, and you'd never know she was drunk, you know. She's, and she, she, you'd go in there at any time of the day or night, and she'd have like the Sex Pistols on or the Who, or and she just, she just loved it. She, she was really, and with Johnny Rotten's biography, you know, anger is an energy. She said, and I've read it four times. It's amazing. It's like he's talking directly to you. She said, you know, which is. <laughs> Amazing thing for somebody. And then we, when we found her diaries after she died, she she done things like, oh, some real excitement today. Sally came to see me. Because mm -hmm. we'd always turn up and announce to whatever, you know, and then uh, I'd go in and she'd say, oh, I'm Sally. Oh, I'm not bothered with her again. And then Sally jumped out from the kitchen and I would be like, oh. <laughs> she loved it, you know. She was... Fantastic. I... I love hearing those stories and like the characters, um, just hearing the different characters in your life and the stories that you create about them. You yeah. kind of bring them alive. Yeah. And yeah. It's it's interesting because like I've never I don't think yeah I've I never I've never met Sally I I never met your mom I never met Holly, but you've brought them alive through all your posts over the years. Yeah. I felt like I got to know them because yeah tiny. yeah that's good yes i like, I like that yeah yeah because holly used to say to people uh, 
I'm sorry, and then I have to tell her a funny story. Then, like you know, the time she she, she said, I, I said something to her. She said, "I think you'll find Dixie. I am rather intelligent." And then she said, "Said intelligent." She walked straight into a tree branch that had been in front of my father's <laughs> house for like forty years, you know, and uh, <laughs> and Holly Holly be on the floor laughing. You know, she, <laughs> Holly's favourite song? Um, she, she liked the Stone Roses and Oasis and um, in fact she met Dexy, you know, from the, the Oasis tribute band and he, he was telling her about this great new film that's going to come out called Svengali and she said, oh I know it's about my, my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, she went, she went to see the Stone Roses, she saw that, she went to see the, the, the Libertines in Cardiff as well and because me and Sally were at the gig, we didn't know her and a friend were going to be there, you know, but they were. And, um, yeah, Liberty's are good as well. They're nice bunch of blokes. If there's a song that you want me to play that you think Holly would have loved, like, I can put that in if, if you want me to. Live Forever, probably. Live Forever, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's lovely. I'll, um, I'll put Live Forever. Right. Is that, is that what you had playing... In her funeral? No, I, I didn't have control of that. There's some idiot bloke there. So, uh... Maybe I Yeah, I did do a speech at a funeral though, and a, a best mate Jess did as well, and Anne of Jess misses her a lot as well, you know, she just had a baby and they gave her a middle name, Holly, and she, she always messages me on Holly's birthday and Christmas day and anniversary of her death and everything. Um, she, she, has some, she has some great friends, you know, they were, they were lovely. When is Holly's birthday? What date is it? 6th of April. 6th of April, okay, so yeah, just it just went by. Yeah, okay. but when I put Barbara Riley back on there, it raised about another £100 on Facebook, you know, for just pretty good. So well, I'll put the link on there so that people yeah, can great. donate. Yeah, and... thanks. Is there anything else you want people to know, like obviously where they can find Jarvis Lane or um, um JarvisLane.co.uk. Um most of the stuff's on there or on Facebook or, or we distributed by DistroKid as well, so we're on like loads of loads of the you know, Spotify things like that. Um yeah. Because you're on Svengali Music as well. That, yeah. Is that, is that the name of the company? So you, you're yeah, like... yeah, yeah. We just took that because, you know, obviously because of the link. Yeah. But uh, Johnny Owen did a cracking job with that film, you know. He, and to get all those people together. I mean, Martin Freeman asked to be in it. Yeah. He, he phoned Johnny Owen up and said, about this film, if I'm not asked to be in it, I'd be really pissed off. 
And that was that, that, that was his own shirt in it as well. Oh wow! And Paul Ga Paul Gallagher was in it, and he had this yeah, I remember. he had this orange uh, thing on, right? And I said, "Ah, oh, Paul!" I said, "I can't believe what wardrobe made you wear that." He went, "Oh, it's mine, Dix." Paolo Hewitt was in it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, because Carl actually wasn't. Carl was in it quite a bit. Yeah, he was. He was. He was really great. Carl was. He's a lovely bloke. Carl is. Yeah, because the Libertines were on the soundtrack. Who were on the soundtrack? Jake Bug, Miles Kane, you know, it was, it was a really good soundtrack as well. What's that song? Um, it, it was the quick, is it quick? Burt's Apple Crumble? Oh, yeah, Burt's Apple Crumble, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Because yeah, that was on the trailer, wasn't it? And, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I thought that, honestly, like that whole film was just so, I loved it and it's so feel, feel good. I've got it actually in my room. Yeah. And I, I went to see it at the cinema and like, even though obviously the the main film was um, slightly different from the pilot yeah. episodes, I loved yeah. both. Yeah. But I think it was such a nice message and it's such a shame that like, films like that, it didn't, it didn't yeah, make it. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Universal did nothing to put, to put it really, you know, it's, it's um, but it could have been a lot bigger than that, you know, because it, it was, it's funny and it's relevant and it's, you know, anybody who's, the Hollywood Reporter said, this film will make you fall in love with Great Britain all over again. Yeah. You know, which is... Also, there was a line in it where, towards the end, I think there was a scene where Dixie, Johnny Owen as Dixie, yeah. he was playing basketball, I think, or he's in a basketball court. No, in football, um, when the singer ran, ran off. That's it. And, yeah. and there's like mountains in the background. And there's one line that he says that always stayed no, with me about perspective. No yeah. yeah. I thought that really stayed with me when I, like, there were little lines like that. It was the, great. That, that scene that they did in the club, that you know, that it all went wrong and everything. What's his name? Keenan Griffiths from Shameless was was there, you know. And uh, I walked around the corner and, I went, and he went, "Fuck me, it's the real Dixie!" And everybody <laughs> in the crowd came up and shook my hand. Like, you know. <laughs> we had a really good laugh, you know. I, I met some fabulous people through it. You know. Well, they got loads of guys from This Is England were in it as well, weren't they? Loads of actors that were in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, Vicky McClure has gone on to do marvellous stuff since, you know. Um, uh, Maxine Peake was in it as well. She was in Soap. Oh, yeah, Soap. she was in And uh, all that. Uh, Keenan Griffiths, Shameless. Um, yeah, there was, there was a really good cast. You know, it was Carl Barat, Alan McGee as himself. He wasn't going to play himself originally. <laughs> we could, we could get Robbie Coltrane. And anyway, he'd only do it then if I drove him up to London and back. Because <laughs> he couldn't stay overnight in London at the time. He lives there now, but he... <laughs> so, yeah, we did all that. And it, was, it, was, it was worth, you know, a great laugh. Yeah. Yeah, is there anything that you want to say more or anything you wanted to... to ask about this or anything else we can we can talk about it i think that pretty much 
They'll be bold shitless with this. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they won't. <laughs> Great. I don't think people will be bored stiffless. <laughs> I think they'll be moved and also it will be... I don't know. I just think it's such an important thing to talk about. A, yeah. to honour Holly yeah. because she was yeah. so lovely and to raise awareness and also because I feel like it's a topic people yeah. don't like yeah. to talk about. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing should be out of bounds to talk about. You know, it should be... So, yeah. thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Oh, you're, you're so welcome, Dixie. And... You've got full creative control, like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dixie. That's all right. So, be lovely to speak to you. Bye. charity single that Jarvis Lane have done in memory of Holly Dixon, Lawrence Brown and Alan Green. You can visit justgiving.com fundraising forward slash Jarvis Lane Bubba O'Reilly. You can find the links or download to listen at jarvislane.co.uk or find it on YouTube. I provided loads of links on the show notes to various helplines to get support, but if you're listening now, you can call Samaritans on 116123. You can also find loads of information on mind.org.uk. As ever, contact soundeffectspodcast at gmail.com or at soundeffectspod on Twitter. If you have any feedback on this episode uh, you can send me an audio message you can also subscribe to sound effects on apple podcasts or your usual podcast channels or you can buy me a coffee on ko-fi.com forward slash sound effects pod yeah bloody hell it's one hour 35 <laughs> what are you doing now? Are you just going to drink more wine? Yeah, I get something to eat. I haven't eaten all day. I, I drove down from oh, Bradford this morning. I've been working all day. So then I was two hours trying to connect to the internet on this. I had to go into the Kremlin's bloody missile launch easy to connect to the Wi-Fi. It was only because oh. Sally said, why didn't you put it connected to your phone hotspot that managed to do, to do it? Their Wi-Fi is absolute shit. There's no metaverse about this. It's just like... Everything I did was wrong. I know. I, I, I've had problems there before, but yeah. Oh, well. Um, I hope you have a good dinner then. Eat well. <laughs> 20% off a of Burger King, so... <laughs>